Uh, Well, Carl said a few weeks ago when he preached that he likes to tell self-deprecating stories because uh, it makes you like him, uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, The problem is sometimes you tell a self-deprecating story and it's so cringy that it has the opposite effect. It kind of makes you, I I don't want to get to know this guy any better. I'm a little little concerned. Uh, Why is he preaching? Uh, with that risk in mind, I'm going to tell you a self-deprecating story, and you can, you can be the judge here. So when I was in seventh grade, my class, or my, my yeah, my whole class, like the, everyone in our grade, did a unit on the Roaring Twenties. And basically, what the unit was about, you had to pick, or you were assigned someone from the Roaring Twenties, some famous figure, you had to do like a big research project on Uh, And then at the very end, the big kind of finale of this unit was we had a speakeasy. So if you're not familiar, in the 20s, a speakeasy, Prohibition era, right? So this is like a party where drinks are illegally sold uh, during the Prohibition era. And I I was in seventh grade, don't worry. None of that was going on at this speakeasy. The public school system up north wasn't wasn't that crazy. Um, But it did involve, at the speakeasy, uh, each of us dressing up as the person that we had done our research project on and pretending to be that person at the speakeasy. So I got the highly sought after role um, assigned to me of the famous Chicago mobster Al Capone, which was exciting. I loved it. Everyone wanted to be Al Capone. Uh, I somehow lucked into it. So I show up at the speakeasy and everyone has to treat me like I'm Al Capone. Uh, and so my history teacher opened the door, you know, Mr. Capone, welcome to your party. And we have a special table for you back here, uh, you know, and we'll only, only, we'll only let special people who you deem worthy to sit with you to come uh, to your table uh, and, and, yeah, to enjoy the, the pleasure of your company. And it took about maybe five to ten seconds of me uh, pretending to be Al Capone for this new pretend power to go completely to my head. Uh, so, uh, to quote The Office, it is the smallest amount of power that has ever gone to anyone's head. Uh, but I sat down at the table with those I had deemed worthy to sit with me, uh, and a friend of mine, his name was Andy, who, he was a baseball player, I can't remember which one, uh, but he was a baseball, dressed as a baseball player from the 20s, and I realized everyone here has to do whatever I tell them to do. And again, this power had just gone completely to my head. And so I, I looked at my friend Andy, a close friend of mine, and I said, hey, Andy, bark like a dog. And Andy looked at me and said, are you kidding? And I looked at him right in the eyes, and I said, no. So Andy looked at me and said, woof. <laughs> and in his eyes, the look he gave me, I knew I had like permanently damaged our friendship. I had crossed a line in our relationship with this like, I got 30 minutes of pretending to be Al Capone and I had already ruined this friendship, right? So power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So our, our whole system of government today is based around this fear of power in a sense, right? Checks and balances. We don't want any one man, any one like uh, arm of our government to be too powerful because... We fear power. We know power can be dangerous. The power, especially in the wrong hands, but almost in anyone's hands, power is damaging. 
It corrupts. But in our passage this morning, we're going to see a power in Jesus that we, in a sense, should fear, but that we should also love. A power that we want to run to, because he doesn't wield power like an annoying seventh grader who thinks he's Al Capone. He wields power for our own good. That's what we're going to see. So uh, it's, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Matthew. We took a break for our Advent season for the last couple weeks here. Uh, and, and so far, just to refresh your memory, Jesus' popularity has been growing. So he's, he's kind of becoming the, the hot new thing in town. Everyone's learning about this new teacher who's got power. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's, he's got this really interesting kind of message of the kingdom he's proclaiming. Uh, and his, his popularity has just been booming. But the last time uh, Jared preached, we were, last time we were in Matthew, Jesus basically turned to all these crowds and said, hey, discipleship is going to be a whole lot harder than you think. You're not ready for what I'm actually calling you toward. And today we're going to look at two stories that follow that kind of rebuke that Jesus gave his people, this, this critique, this rebuke of this easy believism, this you can just follow Jesus and just be casual about it. Uh, we're going to see Jesus' power here in the stilling of the storm and the exorcism of two demon-possessed men. Uh, so far, our outline this morning, if you're a note-taker, our outline will follow three questions. First, who is Jesus? Second, who are his enemies? And third, how do we respond? Who is Jesus? Who are his enemies? How do we respond? I've been spending way too much time with Jared. He's influencing my sermon outlines. Everything's got to be three points. Anyway, let's dive in. Uh, first, who is this Jesus? That's the question. Who is this Jesus? That's the question that Matthew is kind of answering throughout the whole gospel. But this passage gives us its, or it gives us its own unique answer. It shows us something that we don't see everywhere else in Matthew. It shows us something specific. So look at verses 23 through 25. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So our passage starts with a crisis a tragedy, a, a, a horrible natural disaster. They, they hop into a boat with Jesus and this massive storm just comes out of nowhere. The, the, the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. So just kind of randomly, I don't know, I'm not like a weatherman or anything, but they tell me that that means that sometimes there's some kind of converging of, you know, forces in the air, whatever, cold fronts, warm fronts, I don't know. Uh, and these storms just kind of come out of nowhere. So this is a, a not a common, but a likely occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, I don't think I need to illustrate for you the destructive power of water because two-thirds of our building right now is unavailable because one little fire sprinkler leaked for like 45 minutes. Uh, or not leaked, it was busted open pouring water. But you get what I'm saying, right? Water has an awesome destructive power. If you, if you saw the pictures, you, you felt that. Right? There are rooms in this building without a ceiling because water has uh, collapsed them. And that is nothing compared to what the disciples are facing here. So thankfully, you know, when this happened in our building, 
No one was here. No, no you know, ceilings fell on anyone. Uh, here, they're in a storm, on a boat, on the water, with nothing overhead and no, no end in sight. You never know. The storm could last five minutes. It could last an hour. And they're just getting tossed around in this little fishing boat. I think it's rare for us today to feel uh, at the mercy of the natural world. We have a lot of things. We have warm buildings and homes that shelter us and protect us. Uh, but this was a regular occurrence for these men. They knew a storm could hit while they're on the water, and it could be their last. They felt at the mercy of the natural world. And so the disciples' response is dramatic, but it's not unreasonable. This is a crisis. This is a serious situation they're in, and they start screaming for Jesus to save them. It's, it's interesting that I feel like the English is a little, it almost makes it sound polite and formal. You know, they're like, excuse me, Jesus, you know, sorry to disturb your rest. You know, I know you're, you're tired. You've had a long day of work, but we have a small natural disaster going on. Could you, could you do something about this? Uh, actually, in Greek, it's three words. I can't do it in three in English, but it's basically like, Lord, save we die. It's just like, you get this image of like water just like splashing them in the face and they're like, Lord, let's save, we die. It's like this horror, like they're being very dramatic, but again, not unreasonable. This is a crisis. And where is Jesus? With the wind and the waves and the boat rocking and the rain coming down, where is Jesus? He's snoozing. He's just curled up on a blanket with the rain and the thunder around him, he's so conked out, they have to wake him up. They have, like, like the thunder and the rain coming down is not enough. They have to wake him up. I mean, what's going on? Is Jesus a narcolept? Uh, how, how is he asleep here? I mean, so when I was in college, I went on a, a two-month mission trip to Greece, which is great, greatest summer of my life. And uh, I slept in a tent on the beach in Greece for two months. And I remember one night, there was a storm that literally shook me to the bone. I was in a tent. I was on land. Uh, and uh, my wife can tell you, I'm a very heavy sleeper. I'm partially deaf, which is great because you sleep on your good ear. You can't hear a thing like babies crying in the night and things like that. Um, I, again, I was on land in a tent, and that storm woke me up like a shotgun going off next to my head. But Jesus is on a boat, he's uncovered, and he stays asleep until they shake him awake. I mean, what's, what's going on here? Well, sleep in the Bible can mean one of two different things. On the one hand, sleep can be a sign of, of sloth, of laziness. So the Proverbs talk about, you know, someone who's so lazy, they're not even willing to, like, turn over in bed or something like that. It's just it's a sign of laziness. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on. Jesus has been hard at work here, and it's also Jesus, so probably not lazy. But sleep can also be a sign of trust in God. Think about it. When you are asleep, you are completely powerless. You are totally vulnerable. When you're asleep, you're, you're hoping no one comes and like kills you in the middle of the night. Your roof doesn't fall on you. You're hoping the, the world doesn't fall apart without you, your business, your job, whatever it is you do, that, that things are going to be okay. You can be, you can be like not exist in the world for eight, nine hours, 10 if you're me, right? Uh, you, can, you can not exist for a couple hours. 
and the world will be okay. So sleep is a sign that you trust that everything is in the hand of God. That it's not, it doesn't all land on you. It doesn't depend on you. You can, you can trust God to run the universe without you. Psalm chapter four, verse eight. Psalmist writes, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Jesus wasn't a, wasn't a narcolept. Right? He, he didn't have this like sleeping disorder or anything like that. He trusted God so he could sleep through a storm. But the disciples were afraid. And when they wake him, Jesus rebukes them. Look at verse 26. He says, it says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? See that? It's a sign of trusting in God. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Realize before Jesus even rebukes the storm, he rebukes his disciples. Before he even addresses the, the winds and the waves and everything coming down, the world crashing on them, he says, why are you afraid? Don't you trust God? And then he just deals with the storm like it's nothing. He says, yeah, rebuke the storm, it's gone. And I think their response is really the key here. So look at verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? They're asking our question, who is Jesus? What, what sort of man is this? What's, who, who do we have in the boat here? And there's two answers from this passage, two true answers that we get. The first is Jesus is a godly man. He's a godly man. When everyone else is falling over themselves, terrified of the storm, Jesus is asleep because he trusts God completely. He can close his eyes and drift away when everything seems to be falling apart because he knows God is in control. Uh, my oldest son, Eric, uh, is four years old right now. And I will never forget the night Eric was born. Uh, we'd been in the hospital for like two days. It was like this long, drawn-out thing. Uh, there were all these little hiccups that were just kind of stressing me out. Uh, you know, and all these wonderful, you know, common grace, modern medicine things the Lord has given us, like, you know, the technology to measure contractions and see the baby's heartbeat. All these things that are, you know, great were just stressing me out. I hear a beep and I'm like, what does the beep mean? You know, what's going on? Uh, classic, you know, uh, mental breakdown, first-time parent. And it was, it was two in the morning and we were just waiting. So I opened my Bible to a, a random page my eyes fell on Psalm 127, which says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. I read that. I put my Bible down. I laid down on the extremely uncomfortable couch they have in hospital rooms, and I fell asleep. 
because God had made it clear. He was watching over the city. He was, he was building the house. My son was in his hands. I could sleep because he is God and I'm not. Of course, uh, like Jesus, I did sleep a little bit too well. Uh, and two hours later, they had to physically shake me awake despite my wife's loud yelling uh, so I wouldn't miss the birth of my son. But brothers and sisters, Do you see the model we have here in our Savior? You can sleep. You don't need to fear. Follow his examples. He he was this confident in God always. Whatever, Whatever seems to be crashing around you in your life, don't let it steal your sleep because you can, before your head hits the pillow, tell yourself, Jesus is Lord. God is in control. I'm not. I can sleep. That's the first thing. Jesus is that confident in God always. He is a godly man. But second, and more importantly, he's not just a godly man. He is the God-man. He is the God-man. His disciples, at the end, are blown away because the winds and the waves obey him. He calls the shots. He commands the storm. This this rebuke of the storm is not some party trick. It is a revelation of who they have in the boat. Look at Psalm 107. Some of this will sound familiar. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Listen to this. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. That's the power the disciples see in Jesus. They see, they have the Lord of the storm in the boat with them. That when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the power of the storm, it's, it's not a contest. He commands the waves. He commands the wind. He is their master because he made them. He is the Lord of Psalm 107, the master of the storm. And that is why they need not fear. That's why they don't need to be afraid. The one who commands the storm is in the boat with them. And if that's true, it's true for us too. If this is your God, life can throw anything at you. You could have a a painful Christmas reminded of of loss or hurt in your family or things that you wish were there and weren't. You can have a diagnosis that is terrifying and feels uncertain. Your building can flood due to a burst pipe. And you need not fear because the one who commands the storm is in the boat with you. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, 
the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Look what happens when Jesus rebukes the waves again. Verse 26. He rebukes the disciples and then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. A great calm. What in the world does that mean? It's like saying there was so much nothing happening. Remember back in verse 24, how is the storm described? It's a great storm. It's the same Greek word. As great as the storm was, so now is the calm because he is the master. It's, It's like the waves and the wind are saying, shh, the Lord of the universe just said, be quiet. Let's get as quiet as we can be. That's who Jesus is. He commands the storm. He rules over all of nature. So do not fear. Whatever this world throws at you, do not fear. You are not at the mercy of the natural world. You are at the mercy of its master. So that's the first part. That's what we see who Jesus is. We see the entire natural world is is under his rule. But then the next part of the passage switches from the natural to the supernatural. We'll see now how Jesus measures up against his enemies. So who are his enemies? Uh, Well, in the West, uh, here in our own, you know, Texas, Southern American, Western culture, whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the spiritual realm, things like angels and demons, feels very distant, very unreal to us. Uh, Tim taught a few weeks ago about another exorcism Jesus performed, and he, he pointed out something that's, that's true. We have this, like, snobby condes- condescension when we read stories like this. Like, like, oh, those poor ancient people, man. They believed in that kind of stuff. Isn't that crazy? Good thing we have, you know, modern medicine that solves everything. Or, you know, we, we, we think these people are dumb. It's just embarrassing that they, they believed in this kind of thing. When really, we shouldn't pity them. We should pity ourselves. Because the spiritual realm is real, and that modern snobbiness means we are ignorant of something that we need to understand. We are blind to half of reality. So to kind of correct that problem, we're, we're going to organize, as we walk through this, this section of the text, we're going to organize our walk around five things this passage teaches us about demons. Five things this passage teaches us about demons. These will be Uh, Not super quick, but kind of quick. And I'm sorry, I don't have them on the slides for you. I will try to repeat them if you're a note taker so you get them down. But uh, the first thing, the first thing we see from this passage is very clear. Demons are real and powerful. Demons are real and powerful. Verse 28. And when he, again, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Demons are real and powerful. Jesus crosses the lake, uh, and these two demon-possessed men just, like, jump out at him. I don't know if they saw him coming or they just knew that the Son of God is coming. We got to meet him or what, but come out of nowhere. They jump out at him, and these guys, the villagers— who live down the road are so afraid of them that they, they, they're so fierce, they've completely shut down the road. So you, you know, this is Dallas, you complain about your traffic problems, you know, 
bunch of cars or construction. At least it's not demons, people. I mean, come on. But the point is clear already. We're one verse in, and our Western materialistic universe just got nuked. The Bible presents us with a world that is both natural and supernatural, both seen and unseen. There's no place for that snobby condescension. If you reject the supernatural, you are blind to half of reality. These demons are real and powerful. They're they're shutting down the road, and the people are afraid of them. That's the first thing to know. The second thing, second thing, demons know who Jesus is. Demons know who Jesus is. Verse 29. And behold, these two men, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Demons know who Jesus is. Look at this. Again, they they come like a magnet to Jesus and they call him by his proper name name. That's who he is. He's the son of God. They actually, get this, they use the same title that God the Father used of Jesus back in chapter 3. So during his baptism, God the Father looks down, chapter 3, verse 17, says, this is my beloved son. And the demons look at Jesus and say, that's God's son. That's God's son. This might be surprising but demons have excellent theology. They have excellent theology. Their problem is not that they do not know who God is or they don't know what God is like or they don't know his character. They know all of those things. James says, even the demons believe God is one. And he's quoting there the Shema, so this, the, the Israel's statement of faith in Deuteronomy 6, basically their foundational belief, there is one God. God is one. The demons believe it. They know about God, but they hate him. They know Jesus is the son of God. That's what we just saw with the storm. Psalm 107, this is the Lord. Jesus is God. He is the son of God. They know that, but they hate him. They are his enemies. Demons are real and powerful. They know who Jesus is. Third, demons are terrified of Jesus. Demons are terrified of Jesus. Jesus. Verse 29 again. And behold, they cried out, what, you, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. When Jesus shows up at the shore, they tremble. Their eyes, their eyes start jumping all over the place. They, they see a herd of pigs way off and they're like, they, they start begging him, send us into the pigs. A, a lot of commentators have a lot of ideas about why they wanted to go into the pigs. And it's like an unclean animal. The Jews didn't eat pork and these kind of things. Uh, I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think they wanted to go into the pigs because the pigs is what they saw. That's what they were there. If a flock of seagulls is going by, they're like, we'll take it. We'll be with the seagulls. Send us to the seagulls. Whatever fate Jesus has in mind for them, they don't want to know. Demons are terrified of Jesus. 
And part of the reason for that is the fourth thing, the demon's days are numbered. Their days are numbered. Did you see that? They asked Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come to torment us before the time? There is a time. There is a day coming when they know they will receive the torment of God's wrath. They know their days are numbered. They're just showing up at the shore hoping it's not today. Is is it early, Jesus? I hope it's not today. A lot of times uh, people ask why there seems to be so much more demonic activity in the Bible uh, than we encounter in our own day-to-day lives. It's a common question uh, people will, will raise. Uh, and, and part of the answer, as I've already alluded to, is our own blindness. So uh, in our own Western uh, culture, we tend to be more materialistic, less belief in the supernatural, uh, and that means we don't notice, or we don't pay attention, or uh, we miss these things. Uh, we'll have a tech later this semester where I'll, I'll address it. We'll talk about angels and demons, uh, and I'm, I'm excited for that. But there's also a sense in which it is true that the demonic activity, demonic activity is more common in the Bible than uh, in, in our own day. Here, here's what I mean by that. I, I don't mean, think about this. You could read whole books of the Old Testament without ever thinking about angels and demons. There are whole books where they're maybe barely mentioned or not mentioned at all. But you cannot get through the Gospels, the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of Jesus' life, you cannot get through them without finding a demon on almost every page. There's a focus of demonic activity in the life of Jesus. It's not just across the whole Bible. There's, we see it, the kind of this supernatural realm, this unseen realm unveiled to us across the whole Bible. But in the life of Jesus, it's like constant. It's everywhere. It's demons jumping out of like out of the tombs here. Jesus just got to the shore. What, why, where'd they come from? This is crazy. Why? Well, have you ever played a board game and realized, man, I'm toast. I'm not going to win this game. Like this guy is so like powerful and strong right now. I play like Risk. It's my favorite board game. These kind of games, right? Like there's no way I'm going to win. So you just start acting really erratically. You start doing things that make no sense. You just like, I'm, strategy goes out the window. I'm just going to start attacking or, or I'm gonna, I don't know, I'll just go attack this guy. I'll, I'll do whatever because I know I'm not going to win. That's what it's like during Jesus' ministry. The demons know his ministry is the beginning of their end. Their days are numbered, which brings us to the fifth and final thing this passage teaches us. Jesus is utterly sovereign over demons. Jesus is utterly sovereign over demons. Verse 31, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. This whole big dramatic episode we've been reading, the demons do a bunch of things. They they come out, they meet Jesus, they cry out, they beg, they talk and talk and talk. Jesus says one word, go, and they go. Does that not blow your mind? 
Like they're desperate for a way out. They see these pigs and they're like, send us to the pigs. And they still need his permission to do it. They can't do, they cannot move a millimeter without his express permission. They had to beg. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most important things you could learn about demons and the devil himself. They are nothing more than a dog on, the, on a leash in the hand of God. There's no yin and yang here. No like dark side versus light side. This isn't Mayweather versus Pacquiao. This is Mayweather versus someone weak. Jared, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> Not even close. So don't fear. Remember who holds the leash. Remember who is sovereign. That's what we need to know about demons and the demonic. But we haven't actually fully answered our question. Who are Jesus' enemies? Who are his enemies? Part of the answer is certainly these demons. But the passage doesn't end with them. They get sent into the lake, a, a picture of their ultimate destruction that's coming. And the passage, Matthew, Matthew keeps writing. And we find that those opposed to Jesus are not just the obvious ones. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. When the demon-possessed men came out, Matthew used, uh, it's actually a very rare Greek word to say they came out and met him. It's kind of weird. Why does he use that word? There's normal words that mean you meet someone. And then they beg Jesus. What do the people do when they come out of the city? Same Greek word, same rare word. They come out to meet Jesus, and then they beg Jesus. Not to cast them out, but to cast himself out, to get away from them. They are, in the end, no different than the men living in the tombs, possessed by demons. They hate Jesus just the same. They're just more polite about it. Their preference for the status quo makes them hate the very one who came to save them. Which brings us to our third question. Who is Jesus? Who are his enemies? How do we respond? We have these kind of two passages, right? The, the storm and the demon-possessed men. And this is, this, we, see, we see in these two, two different responses to Jesus' power. So how will we respond? The first passage, right, shows Jesus' power over the earth. The second shows us his power over evil. So short story, Jesus has power over everything. Jesus is completely sovereign. The same power is at work in both stories. He makes the storms silent and the demons tremble, but the responses could not be more different. Verse 27, the disciples marvel at him. Verse 34, the crowds beg him to leave. They say, we'd rather have two demon-possessed men than one Jesus. We want our demonic road closures back. Power can evoke two different responses in us. It can evoke terror or joy. 
One of the most uh, popular TV shows of the last decade or more uh, is called Breaking Bad. I, I can't recommend it. There's a little bit of sketchy stuff in there, but basically the premise, as you'll understand the sketchy stuff in about two seconds. Don't worry, I know there are kids in the room. Uh, the premise is that a, a high school chemistry teacher who's this really talented, kind of underachieving guy, he's very meek, kind of pathetic, uh, he gets diagnosed with cancer. And to pay for his treatments, he decides to become, to use his chemistry knowledge to become a drug dealer, as one does. And the whole trajectory of the show is basically how he breaks bad. That's where the title comes from. How he, he goes from being this meek, unimposing, unsuccessful chemistry teacher to this powerful, selfish, evil drug lord. And the show's most iconic line comes near the end when he and his wife are talking. He's been kind of hiding all this criminal activity from her, and she's, she's found out about it. And, and she, she's worried. She, she says, you know, someone will come knock on our door and harm our family. And he looks at her, and he says, you don't know who you're talking to. I'm the dangerous one. I'm the one who knocks. And he means that as a comfort. He's saying, I have all this power. You should be comforted. But that's not the kind of power you want to run to. That's the kind of power you want to run from. That's terrifying. But that's not the only response we could have to power. So in the world of illustration, we're taking a hard turn from Breaking Bad to my favorite Disney movie, Lion King. In The Lion King, there is a scene where Simba and Nala, I'm assuming you're all familiar with the story. It's the greatest Disney movie ever made. Uh, are on the run. They went to the elephant graveyard and the hyenas corner them. They trap them. And Simba's like trying to roar. He's like, Rawr. you know, it's, it's pretty pathetic. I won't do that again. Um, and and their, their hope is lost, basically. They think this is the end. And Mufasa, his father, shows up and just roars. And it's this like two second, it's, you know, again, Mayweather versus Jared, like, like, just destroys them. It's not even close. Uh, and it's this just sweet, he defends his, his son and his, his son's friend. And afterwards, Mufasa and Simba are talking, and Mufasa says, nobody messes with your dad. And that's the kind of power you want to run to. It's the same kind of, it's, it's just as violent, just as ferocious as the I am the one who knocks power, but it's the kind of power that you just want to embrace. You want to embrace you, that you want to, to be right next to, because that you want to adore because it's good. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough for you simply to know Jesus has power. The question is, do you find his power beautiful? Do you find his power beautiful? It's easy to praise God for his, his grace, his mercy, his love, but do you praise him for his power? Do you find his power utterly and unimaginably sweet, something you want to adore and run to, a treasure you want to stand in awe of? That's what separates Jesus' followers from his enemies. It's, it's not just do you know what's true about him. The demons believe Right, God calls his, Jesus, his, Jesus his beloved son. Jesus says that's God's son, or the demons say that's God's son, but I hate him. 
The disciples see Jesus rebuke the storm. They marvel at him. The crowds see the same power and they want him gone because they preferred a cheap contentment over two demoniacs down the street. Sorry, they preferred cheap contentment with two demoniacs down the street rather than the Messiah. Uh, when I was in college, I had a Bible professor, of all people, give us an assignment where we had to watch a movie. Uh, and like Breaking Bad, I can't endorse it for you. I'm using all my edgy illustrations now that the kids are in the room. Uh, I'm shocked my professor assigned this movie. Uh, if you've seen it, you'll probably understand why. It's called Apocalypse Now. Uh, and the basic premise is that the main characters take a journey down a river. So it's based off Joseph Conrad's novella called The Heart of Darkness, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and basically, as they go down the river, every stop, they have all these stops they make, every stop is a new low, a new level of the depravity of humankind on display. So again, I don't know if there's a movie that illustrates human sin better, Although, yeah, I can't recommend it. Um, the movie is based in Cambodia. It's, it's during the Vietnam War. And every stop down the river, again, you see this new level of wickedness. And you're just kind of uh, waiting for the next thing. So the first stop, there's, there's the, the soldiers are, are fighting the war. And okay, that's, you know, war, you know, is kind of sad. Uh, and then the next stop, they're enjoying the war. It's like a game. It's fun. And the next stop, they're... Uh, they're just firing randomly into the jungle. They've gone completely insane, and it's just, it's just chaos. It's anarchy. And you're just waiting. Like, what is the end of the river going to be? Uh, and the end of the river ends up being basically this pagan worship system where they've, they've enthroned a literal man as their god and are worshiping him. I think there's like human sacrifice. It's just this horrible, like wicked, debauchery, paganism. But the movie makes its point not at the end, but just before the end. Because there's all these stops and things get worse and worse and worse and the end is horrible, but just before the end, the second to last stop, what do they find? A nice little plantation in the jungle where a bunch of Westerners are enjoying polite conversation in big meals. And you, you get there and you're like, what? How, I, I don't miss something. They kind of gave up on the whole things are getting worse theme. But the point is clear. These people are one step away from the heart of darkness. But they're worse than the carnage that's come before because they're blind to it. They've covered it up and masked it with, with just polite conversation, with respectable society. They are content with where they are even if it's one stop away from pure evil. The danger for the Gadarenes is that they are blind to their problem. There's demon-possessed men down the road, and they're comfortable with that, but no Jesus here. And the danger for us is that comfortable suburban life would make us blind to how desperately we need a Savior. If we are blind to, we, like the Gadarenes, are his enemies. Jesus, when Jesus comes into your life, there will be upheaval. He will overthrow domains of darkness in your soul. 
He did not come to give a few inspirational quotes. He did not come to make some nice, culturally conservative people with a little bit of God sprinkled into their lives. He came to unmask and overturn your cheap contentment and make dead hearts alive, to banish evil in all its strongholds. That's what he came to do. What Jared just taught here in tech, his kingdom will come in full and the domain of darkness will be put out forever. That is what he came to do. And that is what makes his power beautiful because it's good, because it's destroying evil. It is violent and ferocious in some ways. The demons did not enjoy this, but it's good. Do you find his power beautiful? Can you sing, how great thou art? O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. That song makes no sense to the moralist or the person who's who's just kind of vaguely Christian because they were raised in Southern culture. That song makes no sense. How would I praise God for his power? But true faith sees the beauty in all of Jesus, not just his mercy, but his power, because his power is the strength behind his mercy. A weak God that loves us is no comfort, has no no help for a, a dark, depraved soul. A powerless God that can offer mercy is no help at all. But when your God can still a storm and banish demons with a word, that's good news. That's a God I can praise for his power, who I can trust in the storm because I know he's its master. That's a God I can bring all my sin, all my mess to and trust that whatever upheaval that follows, whatever happens as a result of me saying, you're on the throne, I'm not, you banish the darkness in me. Whatever happens after that, I trust him because I know he's good. It's good news when your God is powerful because it means he can deal with your deepest problem. He has the power, the authority to do that. So then we can sing. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let's pray. Jesus, you are great. Free us from our blindness, Lord. Free us from loving things that make us feel like we're okay, that may lead us to a false understanding of who we are, of who we are as we stand before you. And just amaze us at your power. Amaze us, God, that you could take dead hearts and make them beat. You can make dead sinners and make them alive. You can turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. 
Amaze us at your power. Keep us, Father, from a a fickle and fleeting faith, but a faith that is in awe of our God. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.